One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here. If you're like me and use podcasts as a major source of information, you can sometimes find yourself a little overwhelmed with what's going wrong in the world. Well, I can assure you, Ben and John are examples of what is right in the world. They are an absolute delight to listen to. Rarely do you come across people as kind and generous with their discourse. If you like what you hear today and want to help us on our mission to inject curiosity into difficult conversations, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. And the Principle of Charity tells us to first put aside our own views and try to understand the other viewpoint before we instinctively reject it. Emil, every episode, we have a Principle of Charity personal challenge. And today, I want to set our personal challenge around anger. Maybe I have confirmation bias, but I'm sensing more than the usual amount of anger in conversation and in the media. This may have to do with the fact that we have two big wars going on, which could escalate into regional wars. And so I thought I would share Sharon Salzberg's thoughts on anger today. Anger, she writes, has an incredible energy. It can create change. It can set boundaries and challenge injustice but anger can also burn up its own support like a forest fire. It leaves us with nothing. Just like a forest fire that ranges free and wild, anger can leave us in a place very far from where we intended to go. When we are angry, the mind becomes narrow. It isolates someone or something, fixates on it, fixes that person or that object as being forever unchanging. And such anger supports an endless cycle of revenge, and counter-revenge. But anger can also bind people together as strongly as desire, so that they drag each other along, connected through various kinds of rage, and never being able to let go. And so the personal challenge today is, can you be more mindful of when your anger is dragging others along in a way that makes them hate more? And Emil, on that very, very light note, what's our topic for today? Thanks, Lloyd. Our topic today is, should our ethnic heritage matter? Now, it may sound like a bit of a strange question to ask whether our ethnic heritage should matter, but it's one that has long puzzled me personally, and maybe it has for many of you too. On the one hand, we are unique individuals who, of course, come from families and a line of ancestors, but in the end of the day, we are sort of starting afresh. We, we get to make ourselves anew, responsible for our own lives. We may look to our ancestry for helpful hints as to how to live well, but they shouldn't define or constrain us. And sure, on a genetic level, we've inherited some of the traits of our forebears, but unless we're talking about genetic diseases linked to certain ethnic populations, we've really just inherited genes from past individuals, randomly shaken up in their journey across generations and finally passed from our parents to us. This is not a journey where tribal groupings like ethnicity or race are particularly important. 
And even if the colour of our skin and facial features does express our genetic connection to race, it doesn't follow that it has to necessarily mean something to us. We're just individuals with certain skin colour, with genes from ancestors who, if you if you go back just a few thousand years, actually, were the ancestors who passed down their genes to every other person on the planet. But that view of our ancestry doesn't seem to satisfy many, probably even most people. For them, knowing the tribe we come from offers a deep sense of rootedness and a way of deriving meaning, even pride. It's not enough to draw a boundary around ourselves in the present and to define ourselves through the life we live now. Many of us seek out our ancestry, our tribe, as a way of knowing who we truly are. Now, I confess I'm torn between these two quite different ways of making sense out of our ancestral past. We make sense of our lives through the stories we tell ourselves. Is our ethnic heritage an important and helpful part of that story? But I'm also aware of the dangers of over-identifying with tribes. We, we know that much of tribal thinking is socially constructed, and it doesn't map neatly to the reality of genetic populations. And tribal thinking is always fraught with danger. Any look at history will tell you that. But I also recognize that we have a deep psychological pull towards tribal thinking, one that can't easily be assuaged by telling ourselves that our heritage is irrelevant. And this is particularly true if we're discriminated against because of our tribe. If you're attacked because you're black, gay, Islamic, Asian, Jewish, etc., you quickly find that you're part of a tribe, whether it's personally important to you or not. And this question of whether our ethnic heritage matters and what it means is also heavily politicized. The traditionally liberal view that we should focus on our individuality, on our shared allegiance to our nation state, keeping our tribal affiliations out of the public square is now challenged on two fronts. There's, of course, the conservatives on the right who've long valued ethnic ancestry. But in more recent years, the progressive left has adopted tribal identity as a solution to social ills and not as the problem. Well, Lloyd, I am excited to try and unpick this thorny question. To help us through it, we have two wonderful guests, a cultural expert and a genetic expert. Tell us about our guest, Lloyd. Thanks, Emil. Our two guests today are Benjamin Law and John Rasko. Emil, let me tell you a little bit about Benjamin first. Benjamin is an Australian writer and broadcaster. He's the author of The Family Law, Moral Panic 101, and editor of Growing Up Queer in Australia. Benjamin is an award-winning screenwriter. He's the co-executive producer, co-creator, and co-writer of the Netflix comedy drama Wellmania. He's the creator and co-writer of three seasons of the award-winning TV series The Family Law. He also hosted the ABC TV's two-part feature documentary on Chinese-Australian history, Waltzing the Dragon. He has a PhD in creative writing and cultural studies from the Queensland University of Technology. Emil, our second guest is Professor John Rasko. John is a clinical hematologist, pathologist, and scientist with an internationally renowned track record in gene and stem cell therapy, experimental hematology, and molecular biology. He leads the gene and stem cell therapy program at the Centenary Institute and is head of the Department of Cell and Molecular Therapies at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. He is the recipient of national and international awards in recognition of his commitment to excellence in medical research, including appointment as an officer of the Order of Australia, and finally, the co-author of the 2021 book, Flesh Made New, The Unnatural History and Broken Promise of Stem Cells. Emil, let's bring on the guests. Well, welcome, Benjamin and John. Thanks for joining us. Benjamin, I'm going to start with you. Um, you know, if we stand back and look at human beings in general, it's clear that our ancestry means a great deal to us. We, we seem to have a deep need to know 
you know, where we come from, who our tribe is, who our people are, and to feel some pride around that too. And our racial tribe and ethnic tribe is a big part of that. And we'll get to some of the politics around race and ethnicity in a bit. But I'd love you to talk a little to that deep human feeling that our racial heritage and our identity matter. And you might want to mention the wonderful documentary that I enjoyed so much you made, uh, Walsing the Dragon, about your, your Chinese heritage and why it's important to you. Yeah, that's a really great um, launching pad, Emil, because when I think of my upbringing, so here I am, one of five kids, Chinese-Australian family on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, which is very, very beautiful and has so much going for it. It's not a hugely multicultural, and I don't think I mm. realised that at the time, but when I go back to the area now, I realise wow, we really stood out like a sore thumb. It's not like you really have language for that growing up because it's just the oxygen you breathe, it's the water you're swimming in, fish-like. But now I do realise that what I do have language for is looking back and realising, actually, when I went out to school, when I went out to work, you know, at Big W or whatever across the road, when I went out into public, there were all these ways in which I was an outsider and sometimes that was just a feeling in my gut and sometimes that was made explicit to me, you know, when people said things to my face because they saw the difference or they felt that they needed to address it somehow. But the importance of culture, racial, ethnic heritage, I think is affirmed to someone like me growing up because I would come back to my household to my Chinese-Australian household and feel like, oh, you might be considered different in some ways good by other people and in some ways bad by other people when you step out of the household. But here when you come back, you are part of something bigger than yourself and mm. the food that mm. you eat is delicious. The beliefs that we have about our ancestors are affirmed here. Uh, you don't need to explain yourself and I think there's that sense of homecoming coming back to the physical home but also when I go to Hong Kong, for instance, or when I go to southern parts of China or when I've, um, you know, visited parts of China in filming that documentary you're talking about for the ABC, which is Waltzing the Dragon, where I realise more about myself. And it's funny, I don't think until we shot Waltzing the Dragon, which was kind of like, as much as it was a documentary, it was a little bit of a, a mystery documentary as well, mm. where we were like, actually, mum, where was the seat of your ancestral table? And dad, what was it like growing up in this place I've never seen before? I think after we shot that and we had a lot of questions answered, I felt much more confident about my place in the world generally. So shooting that documentary, I mean, did it, did it change your relationship to your past? Did it give you a greater sense of connection to your, your heritage? And, and I guess my question really is what, why does that matter? It seems to matter, but I'm not quite sure why. And that's the sort of impetus for this uh, episode. I think partly, you know, we all grow up blinkered a bit to our parents' stories. We know enough about them, but I've always grown up with this narrative that I'm the child of migrants. My mum came here from um, Hong Kong via Malaysia. My dad came here from Hong Kong via Southern China. And then they had us, uh, five kids who looked like this and spoke like this. And I don't think until we shot that documentary, I realised that my mother is also the child of migrants. You know, she is Cantonese Chinese, but she had never set foot in the place where all of her ancestors came from until we shot that documentary. She had no idea where her father grew up. She'd never been to those places either. So as much as I had a question mark around my heritage, she did as well. And when we started kind of solving this puzzle together and we had relatives we'd never met say, you know, that would have been the well 
where your father drank from. This is the house where he grew up. My father showing me this is the room in which I was born. You do get that stronger sense of who you are. And I think partly that's about filling in the gaps in your own story. But from the Chinese tradition, and I know a lot of other traditions as well, you don't exist in and of yourself. You're a part of a much bigger story. I think the English translation of what Chinese people believe in is called ancestor worship. Mm. And I'm not sure if we necessarily like worship our ancestors necessarily, but there is an idea that time is kind of a continuum. We are the product of those people. Um, they live within us. You know, literally, we are the product of, of them and their lives, their genetics and their decisions. So you're a part of this story and this is where you fit in. Did you feel Chinese going back there? And is there such a thing as Chinese given your mother was a sort of immigrant within China? Like what is Chinese Australian even? Is that worthwhile identifying with? It's such a good question and that's why I tried to write a PhD thesis around these <laughs> questions. When I was um, doing screenwriting and studying it for my postgrad, I had to write a thesis alongside it and a lot of that was about this idea of what is Chinese, what is Chinese Australian, while also keeping in mind that no community is a monolith at all. So as much as we can make generalizations, there are all these caveats that, that we'll be feeling within ourselves. And I don't know, I think we all carry different aspects of our identity every day of our lives. And when people frame it, I think John Howard, former prime minister, famously said something like, I don't believe in hyphenated Australians. I just mm. believe in Australians. And I think that's a really interesting perspective because sometimes there is this adamant attitude that you have to be one or the other. And there are debates around that when it comes to our heritage. But I think every day we walk out into the street, into our lives, and we carry multiple identities. We are fathers and sons and colleagues, and we come from a certain religious background, and uh, we speak to different people in different ways. And that's not inauthentic. It's just the way that we relate to different people. And I feel similarly about ethnic heritage too. Yet we don't go around saying I'm a father Australian and it's yeah. a sort of, <laughs> it's the primacy and the importance of that ethnic heritage, which which I've battled with personally. I mean, I've, I've grown up more feeling like I'm just an individual who happened to have people in the past who passed on their genes. And mm. I'm really keen to to move to you, John, and, and to talk about some of the, rea the sort of genetic reality there. But before, just one more question, Ben, like I'm also thinking about words like pride and shame, uh, you know, do you think we feel pride and shame for the triumphs or we should feel that for the triumphs and sins of our ancestors, even if we personally can take no credit for what they did? Or, or should we draw a circle around ourselves um, and mm. see that as the boundary of our, of our pride and shame? I often think about that myself. You know, my ancestors are obviously not the first people who set up the colonies on this continent we now call Australia, but am I also the beneficiary of those yes. decisions? Absolutely. So I think we can't divorce ourselves from that broader stories. Do we need to feel personal shame? I think that's something that's a question up for individuals. But are we able to sit in the discomfort of that history? I th personally think there's an obligation to because there are people, if you've benefited from that history, people who have been disadvantaged. When you look at it through that lens of benefit, I would 100% agree there's an obligation to acknowledge that benefit. But there's something more we're talking about here, like do you feel pride in Chinese culture and in the achievements of, you know, the great Chinese heroes? Should you feel pride in that or 
are you just a dude walking around you know, the Sunshine Coast? <laughs> well, I mean, pride and shame are the same conversations, I think, right? right? Yeah. And I think for a long time, my pride has been a response to the shame I've been made to feel. Yeah. And I have been made to feel shame about being Chinese growing up, certainly throughout the mid-1990s with the rise mm. of the first wave of Hansenism, which was very explicitly anti-Asian. And I think about that with my my sexuality and, and the queer community to which I belong. There's a vast history of shame that's still quite palpable and quite present now. And I think when we talk about pride within queer communities, that is a response to, to a history of shame that we've mm. been made to feel. Mm. A lot of people are like, why would you feel proud about your sexual orientation, like where's my straight pride march? And I'm like, look, there are very rare instances where straight people are made to feel ashamed about their sexuality. Maybe when you go to a gay club, I don't know. But but because there hasn't been that history of shame. That- so it's a response to shame. You think pride needs is, is earned as a response to shame rather than just stemming from our relationship to our ancestors? I'm not sure if it's that clear cut, but for me, I feel pride most palpably when it is a response to shame that has been Mm. an unfair burden to carry. Great. Thank you. John, there seem to be so many ways to look at and categorise race and ethnicity in in a broad sense. There's, of course, the social definitions, which are the way most people understand them and which are often contested politically. But there's also the scientific way of understanding different population groups, as I understand it. And And it's wonderful to have you, a globally renowned scientist, geneticist here to help us unpack some of these things. But if you could unpack what our genetic ancestry encoded in our DNA actually tells us about differing population groups and how this then maps or fails to map onto our current understanding of race and ethnicity. I guess you want me to establish some common facts and commonality about the DNA world. And so uh, I think everybody knows that we inherit our genetic payload from our folks, from our mum and dad, uh, that much is established. And based on the Human Genome Project, uh, we now understand that uh, we can compare the relatedness between not just one human to another, but races, as you mentioned, and entire global human species. And of course, other uh, creatures uh, that co-populate this wonderful earth. And so those numbers are earth-shattering. And just to review them, the alphabet soup that make up our DNA, uh, which is a chemical that is found in the nucleus of all of our cells in our body, if you stretched it on all the chromosomes from one end to another, this chemical would, would span about a metre, surprisingly, and it's squeezed up into this trivially small ball uh, called the nucleus of the cell. There are four letters in the DNA. DNA alphabet, and A, C, G, and T, that's the four letters that we refer to. And that DNA is in a double helix that everyone's heard about. The length is 3 billion of those Cs, As, Gs, and Ts stretched out. That 3 billion encodes all the genetic information in our bodies. That's what we inherit from our parents. And amazingly, then we can ask the question, well, what's the difference between me and Ben? And the answer is we are related 99.9%. So 0.01% is the difference between the two of us. And so that sounds like a trivially small amount, which I guess it is, but you have to understand that there are 3 billion of those Cs, As, Gs and Ts lined up. And so that means that the difference between Ben and I is 3 million 
different ones of those letters in different positions. And when you think of the different combinations that they can create, it's extraordinary. So Ben and I are very close. Ben and I and chimps are about 99%. And then it starts to get a bit wacky. I mean, mice and rats and cows are about 90% related. And you'll be pleased to hear that lettuce is estimated at about 40 to 50% genetic similarity. So some of us have described us as nothing much more than a salad. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, the, the simple fact of the matter is that when you think about it, what we're really talking about is what is the instruction set for life. And for life to exist, be it plant, animal, or anything else, you need to have a common instruction set to, to do the jobs of living. And much of that is common between all life. Now, Taking that to its logical conclusion, and I guess we're talking about genetics now, we are all related to a very great extent, and it turns out that race doesn't really have a genetic basis at all. It doesn't really determine um, uh, the differences. How is that possible? Well, I guess there are three main groups in humans. There's the Caucasoids, the Negroids, and the, and the Mongoloids, and we've got two of those groups at least represented here today. So the Negroids split off about 120,000 years ago, and the other two groups, the Caucasoids and, and the Mongoloids, which Ben and I represent, were split off about 60,000 years ago. So we think of human history. We had the indigenous uh, Australians recording their marks on caves that we've dated back to that kind of time frame. So extraordinarily, that was where we can now trace back our genetic origins as recently as that. And recorded human history goes back kind of that far. And what pride we share in uh, an Indigenous Australian culture, the longest continuous culture on the planet that we know of, uh, spanning back to that history. So I guess I've, I've been talking about information to this point and genetics. What's driven me throughout my career is to accept that genetics determines differences between individuals to some extent, but it also determines disease causation. And as a medical man, with that fundamental knowledge that there are thousands of human diseases determined by what we inherit from our parents or what occurs in our body due to an accident of nature, using that information to potentially provide what may be a cure is what's driven me every day at work for now more than 30 years. And we are making great success. So I understand that, you know, you're saying there's, you know, 0.1% is really what differentiates us. But that 0.1% you're saying really is differences between people. It's not differences between races. You're saying there's not much evidence for a genetic underpinning for race. But as I understand it, there are still genetically different population groups. And, and one needs to recognise that in a sense in order to be able to, you know, uh, service people medically. How do those population groups map onto ethnicity and race? The differences between races are less than the differences between individuals. Uh-huh. Okay. And how is that possible? How? Because, how, hey, look at Ben, look at me. We, we look a little bit different. You know, there's an Asian kind of look and there's a Caucasian kind of look. But the diversity between what we might call an Asian-looking person and a Caucasian-looking person, the diversity between those two groups is substantially more within the group than it is comparing the two groups. And that seems to explain that apparent paradox. Now, 
if you'll indulge me one second, it, it isn't the case, therefore, to say that there aren't differences. There are. So, for example, in groups that have been relatively isolated, or if you want to use the word inbred or bred within that group, of course, there's a preponderance or a slight increase in certain features and in particular diseases. Think of certain groups, uh, hypertension in the, in the blacks, uh, uh, Tay-Sachs disease in, Jew, in the Jewish uh, race, um, uh, thalassemia, the blood disorder in, in the Mediterranean groups. So there's no doubt that there's enrichment of those various different uh, features and they can be associated with certain environmental forces or inbreeding or certain other genetic factors. But nonetheless, if you take the populations as a whole, the overlap is much, much greater than the differences. And it's like drawing a curve, a bell curve, and one is slightly shifted one way. And, and this is a famous experiment you can just do in your head. Why are more Asian people at the top universities? We go, oh, my God, Asian people, they're, they're so smart, they're so smart. Well, yes and no. If you just inch the curve a little bit to the right and you make a cutoff, then there are proportionately going to be more people one way or the other. Why more uh, people who are black playing basketball? Well, if you inch the curve a little bit to be taller, then yes, you're going to enrich for that population by having a cutoff, if that makes any sense. We're able to tell genetically, though, where people are from, because as much as people share genes, and my understanding is if you go back two to 5,000 years, everyone who was alive then essentially is an ancestor of everyone today. And mm -hmm. that there was probably 1,500 years ago someone alive then who was an ancestor of everyone today. So, you know, you don't need to go back far to realize we're essentially the same genetic pool. But yet people do tend to, you know, mate within, you know, geographical proximity. And you can tell and geneticists can tell where people are from. How does that process work? And again, is that connected to what we would commonly think of as, as, as race, essentially, or is it a sort of a different, different um, grouping? I think we can work really hard to try and squeeze out a genetic basis for race, but I'll still stand by my original comment, which is the genetic basis of race is flimsy, if, if at all. Um, yep. But sure, um, groups of humans isolate uh, geographically and socially and for other reasons, religious uh, reasons, for whatever reason. Um, and they isolate and therefore they inbreed as a group. And yes, that then can become distinct based on, you know, a, a word that may cause offence to some and apologies if it does. But, but also I'm simply meaning that within a group you, you, you reproduce within that group. It could be an enormous group, but you reproduce within that group as opposed to outside that group. And that enriches for certain features. And I think that's what you're getting at, Emil. And, but, but then what I also understand is sometimes the genetic differences between these populations don't map entirely onto the racial differences. And, uh, you know, one thing I came across, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that the differences between European and Asian populations is actually less than the diversity within African genetic populations. So you, you sort of can't use your eye or the cultural um, prism to be able to, you know, map even to the differences in genetic populations, which, you know, as we're saying, are, are tiny in and of themselves, but but they're still, you know, they're still meaningful enough, I guess, for you as a as a as a doctor and a professor to want to and need to understand those differences in order to 
to make sure you can provide the best medical solutions to people based on their specific genetic background. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. So disease causation often has uh, a genetic root. Um, it may amaze you to hear that uh, there are some 7,000 diseases that affect humans, of which 80% are genetically caused. And of those 80%, only 5% have any kind of meaningful treatment. One of the goals of the area that I've been very passionate about throughout my life is genetic therapies, using the DNA itself as a therapeutic to correct any abnormality or disease-causing gene that might otherwise uh, remain in a person's body and be passed down through generations. The problem, of course, is then it raises the question, well, that's all very well good for a disease, John, but what happens if we now seek to take an even further step, which is to potentially enhance or change uh, the genetic uh, material that will be inherited forever in the descendants of an individual? Something I came across as well, which I, I, I didn't realize, and I, I imagine many listeners won't, is that there's a difference between our genealogical ancestry, the sort of our actual ancestry, which, you know, takes in a huge number of people, really, when you go back multiple generations, and our genetic ancestry, that because we only pick up a random selection of our two parents, we might be related to somebody 15 generations before who who happened to live in, I don't know, um, a, a country in South America, but it might not appear in our genes. Is, is that how it works, that there's a difference between our actual ancestral heritage and our genetic ancestry? It's plausible what you, your, your thought experiment proposes, but in practical terms, there's a statistical regression to the mean. In other words, um, things tend to even out over time. But I guess there's another way of, of looking at it, which is, which is quite fun. I, I alluded earlier to our relatedness to bonobos and chimpanzees, 99% or 98%, depending on the way you cut it. Well, that difference is almost exactly the same percentage difference as the Y chromosome is different to the X chromosome. And so, huh. in fact, uh, whereas related between men and women as men are or women are independently related to chimpanzees, fun fact, you can take that one away. But yeah, what do we make of that? Let's, let, <laughs> let's, let's just uh, chew on that, so to speak, for, for a while. It's the rejoicing in life. That's the commonality. That's the common thread. What I would take away from that is, yes, we are at our core related to each and every other human by an extraordinarily large amount, but we're also uh, related to all life on earth. And the way we make meaning out of difference is, is what's interesting. And we're going to get to that now, Ben, just to turn to the cultural understanding of race. And by race, I'm talking about the, the physical differences that groups and cultures consider socially significant whereas ethnicity, as I understand it, refers to shared cultural characteristics like language, ancestry, practices and beliefs. So, so examples of race might include white or European race, black as in African, Indigenous Australian, East Asian, South Asian. When I think about racial identity uh, as a social construct and not just as a genetic sort of science, as John's talked about, I generally end up with one of three ways of understanding it. And I've been desperate to have you on this podcast to sort of run these by you. The first is, of course, the political idea of biological race, used mainly on the far right, with, with race being weaponized to show that certain races are superior to others. And, and we've touched on some of the reasons why, why that way, way of categorizing people just doesn't stand up scientifically. But the next two are social constructions that the, the left has adopted. And, and the first seems to be an outside-in approach, 
which essentially tries to use the definitions of the right against itself. It says our race is really just the one that the so-called racists tell us we are. You, you know, you might have a black parent and a white parent, but because society sees you as non-white, you, you are therefore non-white, you're black, whether you think you are or not. And, you know, for my personal ancestry in, in Nazi Germany, it didn't matter if someone said, oh, only my grandfather's Jewish and, and, and I don't identify as Jewish, you know, Hitler still called you a Jew and, and, and so you were, you were sent to the, the camps. But the other approach is an inside-out one. It says we all have the ability and, and, in fact, the right to identify as part of a race based on how we feel inside, independent of what box society tries to put us in. How do we square these two very different ways of understanding race on the left and, and also square that with our DNA that provides a very different picture of ancestry? Or, or... I was just thinking when John was talking, I feel like closely related to a lettuce at the moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having to untangle these things because they are incredibly tangled and overlapping. And I feel like um, with those social approaches that you've talked about before, the inside, the inside out and the outside in approach, I feel like I've felt both of those things at mm. different times and for different mm. reasons. I remember, um, you know, one of the early quotes that Tenehisi Coates writes in his book Between the World and Me is that race is the child of racism, mm. not the father. And it took me a while to process what mm. that meant because it came as such a shock to me that the idea that, well, racism must be the result of people seeing different and the race is kind of like innate and therefore hatred forments around race. But I think what he's really taking there is that concept that John's talking about, which is like how much commonalities we have as a human race to begin with. And it's actually the hatred that actually starts categorizing us into, into peoples and into silos that are seen as undesirable. So that's like one approach to seeing Mm. how we categorize ourselves and I think it's a really convincing one you know because you know from my perspective certainly I feel like and I'm sure a lot of other people from minority backgrounds feel like this but I feel like I've ended up talking a lot about race throughout my career but not necessarily having opted into that conversation mm. I don't remember when there was a time where I'm like well, I have to write about race, but because my work reflects who I am and part of that is inextricably Chinese and more broadly Asian Australian, people are really interested in that. Uh, and I think it can be interesting, but I find like in my creative work, I'm myself battling two things at once, which is mm. those moments where you feel like race and ethnicity shouldn't matter in the story that I'm telling. It just happens to be one part of this character. And then there are those stories where it's like, actually, it's fundamental. You know, mm -hmm. it's inextricable to what this character is experiencing and what, what the journey is that they're going on. Uh, we, we talk about this a lot in writers' rooms and I, I researched a lot of this when I was writing my thesis and certainly in my roles as being, you know, in chairs of diversity committees and stuff mm. like that. Similarly, I feel like I want to do those things and I never want to do those things ever again. <laughs> hmm. But there are those moments where you feel like you need to kind of like take on the responsibility to have those conversations. And then there's also that resentment that other people don't have to at all. I feel like I very much understand the outside-in approach, that uh -huh. if you're treated in a certain way, in a sense you're talking about growing up and being made to feel different. You didn't feel different on the inside, right, uh, Benjamin? You, you, 
you walked outside and you were ready to go to school, but you were made to feel other. And therefore, it's reasonable that you you would have an identity that was formed around that otherness. Mm. But we've moved now to this sense of racial identity that it's a sort of we have the almost the right and obligation to look inside and go, who do we feel like we are? Is there a place for that to exist that sits outside society telling us who we are? And what happens if there's a conflict between the two? What happens if society tells you you're a certain race, you're, you're Asian, but you go, actually, you know, yes, I had a grandfather who was Asian, but I don't feel Asian. I don't feel any connection with that part of my heritage. I feel much more connected with, with my Scottish mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and this move more towards identity politics on the left, sort of owning and celebrating um, racial and ethnic identity, partly as a way to push back against, you know, the sort of pressure and racism uh, that, that has othered you to begin with. Is it logical and is it helpful to create an identity around it from the inside? Well, I think there are a couple of things that come to mind with this conversation. And one is that who we are and how we've been categorised mm-hmm. and how we categorise ourselves mm. doesn't come unencumbered with history, right? No. So we are a part of a broader context. And for instance, when it comes to, um, I think sexuality is a kind of a good uh, parallel to these conversations as well, mm. because on one hand, who I have sex with shouldn't be anyone's business. It shouldn't define who I am. It shouldn't be, um, I don't know, related to community or culture or any of those things. And yet, because of the oppression of queer and homosexual people throughout history, there is a history and there is a community and there is an identity that comes with that. And I've met plenty of queer people in my life who are just like, you know, the only gay thing about me is my dick. Like there is that, that very <laughs> particular type of person where for them their sexuality is purely about their behaviour. And I completely see where they're coming from. At the same time, the longer I spend within queer communities, I realise actually there's a history that I'm much more part of. And I think probably when I first came out as gay, I was probably part of that first paradigm of just like, well, it's the least interesting thing about me. It comes from a place of defensiveness because I want you to be able to see me as something not just as of my sexuality. That's something that is part of me, but I don't want that to be the first thing that you consider. As time has gone on, I think things have changed and I'm like, well, actually, I am gay and I'm more broadly queer and at the same time, and this builds to my second point, I know a lot of people in my communities don't like the word queer either because it's been used as a pejorative against them. So I think there are two points I'd I'd make. One, I think we're the products of history and I think part of how you identify and how other people identify you is whether they regard or want to acknowledge that history or whether they identify with that history. I mean, it's interesting you say that when you came out at the beginning, you you sort of felt your sexuality was the least interesting thing about you, but then came to sort of recognise the community within which you, you, you're bound and also the historical and cultural reality around how that community has been treated. Couldn't one argue then that in a sense, the inside out approach, the sort of pure approach rather than the defensive approach was I'm just a human being who happens to find guys hot. (laughs) And, you know, what happened then is more of an outside-in approach of a sort of awakening to the fact that it's 
sort of naive in a sense to discount the way your community has been treated that you you know you can't you can't just be an individual i think it's a really uh good way of mapping out my trajectory what you've just said and as you've been saying it back to me what i've realized that i've left out is that that kind of inside out approach where i'm gay i'm attracted to men but that's the least interesting part of me that doesn't exist in a vacuum either that's also yeah of history too and the reason i feel like that that defensiveness comes from homophobia which i've now internalized that there must be something wrong with me not being that kind of gay that kind of gay that goes out partying that kind of gay who loves mardi gras yeah yeah nowadays you know Mm. that in and of itself comes from a history of shaming of queer people that we can't escape the uh divorce yourself either way just sort of stepping back a little because i'm looking here then at what are the helpful ideologies and and you know we, we we know we've talked about race being socially constructed to a substantive degree and and that what unites us genetically is is infinitesimally greater than what separates us and if you go back not too far we actually come from the same dna stock and it also seems just to move to the sort of some of the big ideologies that many of the world's great belief systems have focused on sh- our shared humanity, on what unites us rather than our differences. They, they, they know that tribal thinking is, is like playing with fire and they want to reduce rather than fan the flames. So, you know, my mind went to the great monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, which all point to, to the spirit of God that resides within. And that spark of the divine is what gives us equal moral worth. Then the Enlightenment philosophers, you know, try to make that all stand untethered to, to God. They made a case for human dignity and equal rights based purely on reason. And even some of the more purely spiritual traditions, the spiritual parts of Hinduism and, and Buddhism, ask us to transcend the illusions of our separateness and recognize the pure consciousness, the, the ultimate truth we all share. And I have wondered whether the push towards identity politics, which asks us to focus on how we are different, even if it's justifiable as a a strategic defence against everything you've talked about, against the sort of racism that's constituted us. But in the end of the day, is it just a poor strategy for a flourishing society? And and will it leave us worse off? Or is it a temporary strategy, would you say, that we, we, we're hoping to transcend and in the end just move back to our shared individuality. Or maybe there's a model where we do want to double down on our tribes and sort of have a non-hierarchical relationship between different ethnic and racial groups and, mm. and, and that's the new sh- shared future. Where would you like this to go if you could, <laughs> if you could wish our future upon us? Where I'd like it to go is I'd like us to have the capacity to hold simultaneous truths at Uh once. Uh You know, what you're talking about and what this episode is particularly about is two things are simultaneously true, which is like we actually have so much in common when it comes to the science of who we are. Fundamentally, we are so, so incredibly the same, yet at the same time, history has made us different. Um, but also we do have inherent differences that can and should be celebrated. Mm. And I think when it comes to strategy, I'm not sure if there's one kind of like fix-all, and I think that's why these kinds of like different approaches have kind of emerged as responses to each other perhaps. The weaknesses in each of those strategies, which is, look, we are all the same, which is fundamentally true, let's celebrate that. The weakness of that is the potential erasure of our difference as a point of Mm. celebration and embrace. Mm. The weakness of identity politics as well, uh, which is to cause division. Mm. And so I think there's always going to be these 
oppositional forces kind of in flux. That's a great that's a great answer. John, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about gene editing technology. And, and it's extraordinary what the future holds for us um, to be able to manipulate genes. So babies may who may have grown up with horrible diseases and a life with much suffering can, can grow up to have fuller, happier lives. And at the same time, the line between a clear-cut alleviating of suffering and the politics of playing God can be a fine one. You know, gene editing could be used to privilege a whole range of characteristics that have normative bases rather than just purely medical ones. Even something as seemingly clear-cut as ensuring babies don't have hearing issues is seen by some in the deaf community as a form of neuronormativity, which implies their experience of the world is lesser than those who can hear. Then there are other mental health issues that are genetically related, like depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, characteristics like intelligence, height, even personality traits like agreeableness. And, and then there are, of course, the traits that cover, you know, that cross over with, with race, such as facial features and, you know, eye, skin color. I know much of this is still science fiction, but what should an ethics of gene editing look like in, in 20 years' time? And, and how do we differentiate this approach from the eugenics approach of the past, which has scared so many people in, in, in the sort of world of, of, of trying to improve uh, anything to do with race and genetic populations? Just imagine uh, the consent process. We all understand that when we go to a doctor's, we uh, consent, for, for example, to have a physical examination. We consent to do various things and perhaps have a procedure performed, whatever it might be. And that's a one-on-one -on -one discussion. Uh, and you are given all of the options. You're given the pros and the cons, and then you decide what to do, put your, put your name on the, on, the, on the line. In the case of potentially editing the genome, well, that may be okay to cure a person of a serious genetic disorder. However, imagine the responsibility that we sh share to future generations and the frank impossibility of consent to a person that's never even been conceived yet, let alone mm. born or have the ability to comprehend the implications of that. You mentioned, for example, the deaf culture, uh, where some individuals within that culture have said, actually, we don't want your cures. We have our own culture. We have our own means of communication, our own language, signing, and we don't want to be oppressed or invaded by this speaking culture or by this sounding culture. And as recently as, as the last few days, we've learnt that there is now the earliest phase of uh, clinical development suggesting that there are some potential cures for genetic uh, deafness uh, in young babies uh, only several years old where mm. for the first time in their lives they can start to hear based on a genetic therapy, so a form of gene addition in this case, but the same kind of technology that you're referring to. Now, that's in the individual who's alive, and there are pros and cons there. That, of course, those little babies can't decide for themselves. It has to be the responsibility of the parents. And, of course, people argue, well, we take responsibility for decisions in our offspring all the time. We make decisions uh, that we fuss over and worry about, and, hey, what happens, happens. But in the end, imagine that responsibility carried on not just to your children or your grandchildren who you may meet, but forever, for every generation that goes past that individual who's been genetically modified in mm. their so-called germline, that goes on forever. 
So they may not be part of a deaf culture or they may not acquire a particular predisposition to a disease. The implications of that are mammoth and they are very, very real. So I mentioned at the very top that we are forbidden legally from undertaking this form of genetic modification that's inherited from generation to generation. But I was only involved in uh, 2022 and a few years before that with a group of experts in um, changing the law in Australia for this thing called mitochondrial donation, uh, the little batteries in all of our cells that can lead to multiple different genetic diseases, severe, horrible genetic diseases. And now in Australia, we have changed the law, the legislation to allow this form of mitochondrial and inherited genetic modification. And the first tentative steps may be taken in Australia in the coming years as we progress the technology. And the United Kingdom, having been the first country in the world to legalise that, has already embarked on those uh, tentative mm. steps. So it's real, it's now. And you mentioned that key word earlier, Emil, science fiction. Well, Gattaca the famous film uh, that is now quite quite old, really explored a, a society where genetic editing and gene addition, gene modification was so commonplace that parents had a moral obligation not to take on some of the enhancements that were being offered them. And children who didn't take on those genetic enhancements were regarded as somehow genetically defective. So one can imagine a world where some families, parents, individuals, take the opportunity to actually not just treat diseases, but using essentially the same technology, extend that to forms of enhancement. And that's where I have to draw a moral and an ethical line in my uh, assessment that's where I say, uh, no, thank you, not until we demonstrate a clarity of moral agreement and compassion where we can go forward with an idea that is, that is agreed upon. However, there are philosophers worldwide that have argued we have a moral obligation to enhance, to use all of these technologies to take advantage of what essentially Mother Nature provided in some way directly or indirectly, and those questions are real and they're debated at the highest levels. Does the fact that the enhancements continue for multiple, you know, indefinitely, does that change the moral equation? I would submit it's an entirely, entirely different, different kettle of yep. fish because you are actively intervening uh, with something quite specific. Uh, and that means that there is a responsibility who is legally responsible if there's some kind of negative consequence in five generations' time? Who are you going to sue? None of the people involved, including the great-great-great-grandparents, are alive anymore. These are real, actually, yeah. questions that, yeah. that, that society needs to deal with before we even begin to tentatively step towards these substantial genetic changes that, that really can do your head in if you think about them too long. How do you think about your ethnic and racial identity, not just as a scientist, but but as a, as a human being, you know, trying to make meaning of your own life? Uh, you know, you, you've got such a deep knowledge of the, the sort of scientific truth, but you're also obviously a social, cultural uh, individual. Has it affected how you see yourself? Well, of course. And so much of what Ben describes uh, in public and uh, today, uh, as well as uh, clearly in such a rich 
uh, life and describing his ancestors resonates with me enormously. Um, some of the things that uh, Ben was talking about, such as um, having almost uh, uh, two sides of, of uh, his his uh, view of ethnicity. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a complete human as well, and uh, I have a history that actually is not too dissimilar uh, to Ben's in many ways. I am the son of uh, a Hungarian refugee who uh, found himself liberated from a concentration camp uh, in a Jewish family. Um, I was denied paternal grandparents. Both my grandmother and my grandfather on my father's side were murdered in the Holocaust in concentration camp. Uh, and so to that extent, when dad came out as a $10 refugee after the civil war in Hungary, um, I was born, you know, a few years later to, to a, an Aussie mother to that extent with German stock somewhere in the distant past. But that kind of displacement that I think Ben has so famously referred to and, and publicly, uh, you know, rejoiced in but also um, observed carefully in, in his works resonates so strongly mm. with me. Um, I never felt like I was different and maybe this is something, Emil, you were talking about earlier. I mean, you look at me, okay, look like a white boy. You look at Ben, well, looks like an Asian boy. So instantly there is a point of difference, but I always felt like an outsider uh, growing up. I don't think I was ever victimised, I guess, for being Jewish or for being of European stock, but because... I guess my brother and I begged my father to teach us to speak Hungarian and he refused. One thing I can remember, I mean, he died when I was a young teenager, but one thing I remember vividly was he said, no, no, I don't want you to speak this obscure language. You are Australians. I want you to embrace that culture here and now. And like Ben was saying, sometimes it takes decades in our lives to look back and go, wait a minute, there are ancestors, there's a culture, there's a history mm, here mm. that was kind of denied me. And it's mm. it's like an emptiness, but it's a point of difference and it's a feeling of always being displaced, always, mm. am I really meant to be here? What, what was all this about? Mm. How did I come to be here? And that then triggers a need to find out about ancestry and history and, and connects us all through that yeah, cultural history that Ben so beautifully described. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That's beautifully put. That was part one of our Principle of Charity conversation. But join us next week for part two, where Lloyd meets the guests on the couch to throw them curveballs with unfiltered, hard and personal questions. But first, a word from our partners. The Ethics Centre is an independent not-for-profit that for over 30 years has advocated for a more ethical society. Through all our work, we bring people together, create space for difficult conversations and encourage all to live and act according to their values. Check out our website for free access to articles, podcasts and videos that unpack the complexities of everyday life at www.ethics.org.au. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.